Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, verses 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to your word and we pray that you'll show us from your word the marvelous gospel, the gospel that you have proclaimed back in the Old Testament, deep into the Old Testament, and now here in the New Testament. We ask you now to help us understand this in the relationship of the Testaments, the relationship of this individual Melchizedek to our Lord and Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll show us so that we have greater confidence in this word, this word of truth, and that we are able to boldly proclaim it to a lost world. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've come in this letter to chapter 7. In, in chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 10, verse 18, our apostle is now going to become very, very theological and doctrinal in his exposition. He's going to be theological and doctrinal in his exposition. He's going to explain why it was so important and necessary for Christ to come into the world as a fulfillment of the various promises of the Old Testament and the various illustrations or types and shadows of the Old Testament that are now fulfilled by the personal coming of Christ. The Old Covenant had as its correspondence or corollary, its counterpart, the New Covenant. So the Old Covenant had a period and now the New Covenant is in force. That's his argument from chapter 7, verse 1 to 10, 18. He's not going to be so much exhortational. He'll pick up on that after 10.18, from 10.19 until the end of the book. He'll be, go back to being more exhortational in, in terms of, well, what does that mean in terms of faith and what does that mean in terms of obedience? But right now, he wants to ensure that we correctly understand the fundamental truths of the Word of God and the Gospel of God through the Word, the ultimate Word of God, that is Christ Himself. He wants to make sure that we understand this. Now, in the preceding chapter, at the end of it, he highlighted the fact that we ought to be encouraged when we help one another and love one another, and we also ought to be encouraged when we have faith, faith like Abraham. After putting Abraham front and center at the end of the last chapter, as a perfect model of faith, which the scriptures do, not only in Hebrews 6, but in other places in the Bible, many places in the Bible, Abraham is the perfect example of a man of faith. He's the perfect example of someone who lived by faith. However, there is someone and something more superior to Abraham, and that is what we have in chapter 7. In chapter 7, he begins to say that though Abraham is the perfect example of a man of faith, someone whose identity and someone whose ministry 
is superior to Abraham makes it the fact that we must believe what Abraham actually believed, what Abraham actually knew, what Abraham actually believed, and his relationship to this one who is superior in identity and even superior in ministry should also be the same one in whom we put our faith. That's the argument, basically, of chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. He's going to argue that if Abraham was a man of faith and the perfect example of that, well then what did Abraham know? And what did Abraham believe? And what was his relationship to these covenants? To the old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant itself, the old covenant, and even the new covenant. What was Abraham's understanding and relationship to that? So if we are like Abraham, we should believe like Abraham. So what did he encounter? What did he know? And that's what we have in chapter 7. 7 verses 1 to 3. He has just mentioned Melchizedek in the, at the end of the last one. And now he says, For this Melchizedek, he says it in a very interesting way, this Melchizedek. He's mentioned Melchizedek a couple of times before, but now he's ready to explain this Melchizedek in terms of his identity. His identity is very important because his identity is superior to Abraham. Abraham was a man. He was a regular, mere man, just like we are, men and women. He had a human nature. So in that sense, Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek's identity and Melchizedek's ministry. That's why he's taking pains right here in verses 1 to 3 to explain who is this Melchizedek that was superior to Abraham. He says, firstly, he is king of Salem. King of Salem. What is Salem? Salem is a short form of Jerusalem. In Psalm 76, verse 2, Psalm 76, verse 2, there, Salem is mentioned as a parallel to Zion, and Zion is one of the mountains of Jerusalem. So, Zion or Salem, in Psalm 76, 2, make it quite certain that here, he is king of Salem, means he is king of Jerusalem. But he didn't give the full name because he's just wanting to focus on the Salem part, because he will say later in verse 2, king of Salem means king of peace, because the word Salem or Shalom, different ways or different forms of the same basic consonants, are, are words of peace. So he says here that he's king of Salem. Now, at this point, we have to explain that there are several understandings or several interpretations as to who Melchizedek was. There are several of them, and I'll just list them very briefly, and then we'll get to this passage and what I think ought to be the focus of the identity of Melchizedek. There are some, and this is the very most ancient view, likely is that the ancient, most likely ancient view among the Jews was that Melchizedek was Shem. Shem, the son of Noah. That's what they believe, and many of them still believe that Melchizedek was Shem, who in his lifespan would have had some overlap with the lifespan of Abraham. So they say that Melchizedek was Shem. 
Others say, no, he was one of the descendants of Peleg, one of the descendants of Peleg, who was a descendant of Shem. But further down the line, Peleg and the earth was divided in the days of Peleg, that he was one of the sons of Peleg's descendants. Another view says that Melchizedek was an angel, an angel who just appeared temporarily from heaven, one of the created angels, not the angel of the Lord, or Christophany, or pre-incarnate Christ, not that angel of the Lord, but just one of the created angels, unnamed, unknown, that he came and appeared to Abraham temporarily. Uh, others say that he was a real and actual king, a Canaanite king of this city, because this kingdom was right there in Jerusalem, that he was the king of Jerusalem, a Canaanite king one of the Canaanites, perhaps even a Jebusite, because the Jebusite peoples were those that primarily had that region of the land of Canaan uh, known as uh, Jerusalem. In that area is where the Jebusites reigned and ruled. So he might have been a Canaanite or specifically a Jebusite king. And then others say he was just a regular man, a mere man, just like one of us, that God used and installed temporarily at that point in order to illustrate what he's about to illustrate here, in order for it to be a figure and an illustration of a comparison between that man, that mere man, and Christ. And then lastly, there are those who believe that he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, that he was Christ or a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament as he does in many other places, Christ does appear, that this is one of those pre-incarnations of Christ, where Christ appeared temporarily in order to minister, to deliver the word, whatever it may be at the time, to an individual or to a group, that that's who this is. Now, in my estimation, of all of those opinions, I think that the last one is the best option. The last one is the best option, and if one is unsatisfied with that last option as the best, then one must actually suspend his judgment and just say, we do not know. We do not know. Because any of the other ones that I've just mentioned, aside from a pre-incarnate Christ interpretation, all of the other ones contradict this very passage and contradict the facts of Genesis 14, contradict the, the fact of Psalm 110 verse 4 mentioning Melchizedek, there is some contradiction in one way or another with all of the other interpretations. For example, if he was Shem, or a son or grandson of Peleg, then we do know his genealogy. We do know who his father was. We do know who his sons were. So that, that's just one way in which these previous or uh, interpretations I just listed, in one way or another, blatantly contradict what we know is in here in the Bible. I think that the safest, and best interpretation is to say that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, and if that is the case, I think that this passage will make sense, extremely sensible with that interpretation. Not only this passage in verses 1 to 3, but the rest of what he says in this chapter about Melchizedek. So, let's see why. In verse 1, it says he is king of Salem. Now, if this was a pre-incarnate Christ, then he would be king of the heavenly Salem. 
the heavenly Jerusalem, which is mentioned in Hebrews chapters 11 and Hebrews chapters 11, 12, and 13. There are passages which do mention the heavenly city that was the hope of Abraham. Notice in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And also going back to verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Hebrews eleven ten, And even Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. And also 13, chapter 13, verse 14. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. In this way, it makes sense as to why he was king of Salem. He was king of the heavenly Salem, the heavenly Jerusalem, and also priest of the Most High God. We know from the account of Genesis 14 that he was called priest of God Most High, or the Most High God. He was a priest. And priest in a unique sense. He was a priest in the ritualistic sense, in the uh, mediation sense, in the sense that he had a religious obligation or a religious office, and that was his function. He was that. But we also know from verse 1 that he was a king. And that creates the dilemma. If it's not Christ then this would mean that there was a king in the Old Testament, there was a priest in the Old Testament, and there was a prophet in the Old Testament, all three together in one person on the earth. When in fact, throughout the Old Testament, no one on the earth was permitted to have those three divine offices of prophet, priest, and king. Yet Melchizedek seems, at least with king and priest explicitly here, to have both roles. Remember, Samuel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they were priests and they were prophets, but they were not kings. David and Solomon, they were prophets and they were kings, but they were not priests. They were prohibited from doing any priestly duties. Yet this man here, this individual Melchizedek, he has this, two, these two, this twofold role. He is king of Salem and priest, of the Most High God. Now, if he's priest of the Most High God, this rules out that he was any pagan, earthly king. He was not a pagan, earthly king. He did not worship idols, but he worshiped the Most High God. And this would make sense with the Christological interpretation that if he is the king and the priest of heaven and of God the Father in heaven, then that fits Christ perfectly. Furthermore, Abraham, verse 1 says, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Remember, when Abraham returned from victory, from recovering in warfare, what he lost, he lost Lot, his nephew, other people, and possessions. He went to recover them, and when he came back, this Melchizedek met him. 
And when he met him, he blessed Abraham. It says, he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high. So he blessed Abraham. He pronounced this kind of official blessing on him. A desire for God to be benevolent and kind and good, furthermore, to Abraham. Because Abraham trusted in God. He trusted in God, and God delivered Abraham's enemies into the hand of Abraham, as Melchizedek says there in Genesis 14. So, who usually blesses another? Does someone in a lower position of authority bless the one in the higher position? Or does the one in a higher position of authority bless ones in the lower position? It is the latter. Those who are in a higher position bless those who are in a lower position. That's why it says in 7 verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The lesser is blessed by the greater. So in this case, Abraham knew that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. He knew this, and he was not afraid of it. He did not have any doubts about it. It's just a matter of fact, Abraham knew who Melchizedek was and received that blessing from him. Not only did he receive that blessing from him, verse two, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. The second point he makes here is that a tenth of all the spoils or a tithe of the spoils, tithe means tenth, a tenth or a tithe of the spoils, what Abraham recovered and what he gained by defeating those kings, he brought that back and what he brought back, he gave a tenth to Melchizedek. When he gave a tenth to Melchizedek, there too is an implication. Who is it that gives to the other? Is it the priest? Is it the minister who tithes to the people in the Bible? No. In no instance do we see that. In fact, it is the people, the worshipers, who are coming to worship, who tithe to the priests. That's the way tithing works. And in that case, that is another way to signify the superiority in terms of position of Melchizedek to Abraham, even though Abraham is a godly man of faith. And this is the argument he makes as well. It says in verse 6, Hebrews 7, 6. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. See there, he says that Abraham gave to one who was higher in rank than he was. That's why he tithed as a man of faith and obedience. He knew what his obligation was. Then verse 2 continues. He says, He was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. He takes the name Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Melchi means king of. Zedek means righteousness. So his name was king of righteousness. In terms of common nouns, that's what the meaning is, but in terms of a personal, proper noun, his name was Melchizedek. Now you might say, 
that sounds strange, that's odd. Well, even today, a lot of uh, people, let, let's say women, they will have names like hope or grace. Those are virtues, right? Those are common nouns. They are virtues, but they are given as personal names. Well, in the same way, this individual, Melchizedek, had these common nouns, king and righteousness, and they were put together for his name, Melchizedek. And that was his name. So he says, he was king of righteousness. And not only king of righteousness, but king of peace. And why king of peace? Because he's called the king of Salem. And as I said before, Salem or Shalom means peace in the original language. So he was king of peace. This shows us that righteousness was understood by Melchizedek and Abraham. It shows that they understood righteousness. And what would true righteousness be? Would, would it be Abraham was a good person? He was a swell fellow? Would, is that what it meant? That Abraham was just an overall good guy? Is that what righteousness would mean? No. It would mean that Abraham believed in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, as it says in Genesis 15, 6. Because Abraham believed in Christ, Christ's perfection, Christ's righteousness was reckoned to his account, was imputed to him, was given to him, counted to him, so that even though he was a sinful man, that his sins were covered, his sins were cleansed, his sins were forgiven because he believed in Christ. So he, his righteousness, Christ's righteousness, was reckoned to Abraham. So when the father looks at Abraham, he does not see Abraham's sins, he sees Christ's righteousness. So that's the way in which he was king of righteousness, and he would have preached that. And Abraham would have understood that. Not only understood justification for righteousness, but also he would have understood walking in righteousness, living in righteousness day by day. As it says in the Beatitude, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And it says in Hebrews 5, 11 to 14, that we ought to be those who have a hunger for the word of righteousness. Well, this word of righteousness teaches us that day by day, as we hunger and thirst, we ought to be hungering and thirsting for the righteousness of God. Whatever is right and good and true, reliable, certain, absolute in the Bible, that should be more and more of our person, more and more of our being every day in our maturity. This is what Melchizedek represented. This is what he preached. He did not preach sin. He did not preach a casual Christianity. He did not preach anything like that. He preached a robust, zealous, dedicated Christianity. That's what he preached. Further, he was king of peace. What peace? Was the king of peace as though it's peace from war? No. There was war and conflict all the time going on in Genesis and Exodus and throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, indications of warfare. Throughout history, always warfare, warfare, warfare is going on all the time. So what is this king of peace? What does that mean? It means it in the sense that there is animosity and enmity between God and men. 
There is this division between God and men. And the only one who can bridge the gap is the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. It is Christ who is the one who reconciles us, us to God, because of his mediation. He died and he rose again. And it's only by faith in him that we have this peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 Because we are justified by faith, Christ's righteousness is overcoming our wickedness, we have peace with God. Not only do we have peace with God, but we have peace with one another. And we seek to have peace with one another. You recall, Abraham understood this too. In Genesis 13, when there was a dispute between Abraham's servants and Lot's servants, Abraham, being a man of peace, being a peacemaker, and even that is in the Beatitudes where it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He was a peacemaker. He learned peacemaking because he was a true believer, and also Melchizedek represented this true peace, peace with one another. That is, wherever there was conflict, wherever there was fighting and infighting between one man and another, now this redeemed man, man of faith, he begins to walk righteously and he seeks for peace. He seeks to be restored in friendships. He seeks to be restored in family. He seeks to be restored with his co-workers, whoever it may be, to the extent that it's possible to him as it says in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. So whatever barriers there used to be, those barriers are broken down. They're broken down because we seek to love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if we love our neighbor as ourselves, we love God. This is what Melchizedek represented. He represented this. Now, you might be thinking, where did he get this, or how did he get this? Well, the Bible does this all over the place. That is, the Bible takes a name or a word, and the Bible will say that whether the father or the mother gave the name to son or daughter, an explanation is often there in the biblical passage. They didn't give names usually in a very casual or flippant way, or because it just sounded nice to them. They gave the name because of the meaning of the name and what they wanted to see in their son and daughter. That's why they gave names. So it should not surprise us that the apostle is taking the name Melchizedek and other things associated with him and is parsing them for us. He's parsing or analyzing them for us, explaining them to us because there's significance in them. We know this to be the case with Abram. Abram meaning exalted father. His father, Abraham's father, gave him the name Abram, but God called him Abraham in Genesis 17, which means father of nations or father of a multitude of nations. That's why he changed the name. He changed it for that. Or take Abraham and Sarah. Why did they name their son Isaac? They named their son Isaac because Isaac means he laughs, and he laughs reminds them of the fact that when God announced the good news to Abraham and to Sarah, they laughed because they were thinking of the joy they would have in the fulfillment of the promise of God. 
That's why. So on. So I say that because there are people who think, uh, skeptics who come to the Bible and they think that when the authors of the Bible are saying this and parsing names, that they're doing it in a very loose fashion. They're doing it in a very irresponsible way and that there is no significance and meaning to what we find in the Bible. Names are just names and whenever this is being done, as we have in our passage, that the Bible is just making it up as it goes along. No, that's not the case. Actually, there's significance and great significance in the names given to numerous individuals throughout the Bible. So, when we are reading the Bible, let's do the same. Let's stop, let's pause, let's see why did so-and-so name the son this name or the daughter this name? And what's the significance in the passage theologically? What's the significance of it theologically in relation to their faith, in relation to the gospel, in relation to their hope? What did they put their hope and trust in? Furthermore, verse 3. This Melchizedek is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Melchizedek, in Genesis chapter 14, he simply appears, and that's it. And when he appears, there's no uh, startling Abraham, there's no confusion in Abraham. Abraham knows there's no problem whatsoever between him and Abraham. So Abraham took it all with logic, with composure, with faith. He took it all like that. That must mean that Abraham did not have a problem with the identity and the ministry of Melchizedek. And if Abraham did not, why should we? We should just take it as it is. And taking it as it is, verse 3, he was without father because his father is not mentioned. His mother is not mentioned. There is no genealogy mentioned. Even his previous, uh, his ancestors or even his descendants, nothing like that is mentioned of this great individual, Melchizedek. Nothing is mentioned. Not even circumstances surrounding his birth, nor circumstances surrounding his death. Nothing like that is mentioned. And why? Why is nothing mentioned? I think nothing is mentioned because nothing needed to be mentioned. Nothing is mentioned because nothing needed to be mentioned. Why? Because if he is the pre-incarnate Christ, nothing was mentioned so that he might serve as a perfect example or illustration, type, shadow of the Son of God. That's what he says in verse 3. But made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. He was made like his circumstances, his announcements, everything about him, Melchizedek, he was made like the Son of God. The Son of God, not the Son of Man in the human sense of Jesus' human nature, but Son of God. Son of God means that the Son, Jesus Christ, does not have an origin and He does not have an end. He was never created and He will never end. He's not going to uh, begin to possess deity and at some point He's not going to give up His deity and hand it over to another deity. Nothing like that happens with the Son of God. When the Bible says He is the Son of God, it means He has a divine nature equal to the Father. John 5, 17 and 18. 
My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, the Jews were all the more seeking to kill him, for he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. When Jesus called himself the son, or his father, my father, when the Bible calls him the son of God, it means he has an eternal nature, a divine nature. He is the one true and living God. There's no God before him and no God after him. Perfect God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, Melchizedek appeared this way so that he might be this likeness, as it says here, but made like the Son of God. He's made like the Son of God without any kind of ancestry and genealogy. Furthermore, he abides a priest perpetually. We know from the Mosaic Covenant that the tribe of Levi and especially the family of Aaron, they were the priests. The ministers were the whole tribe, the males of all the people of the Levites, they were the ministers, but the priesthood, the high priesthood from Aaron, it came through his descendants. Now, in that case, when you have the father and then you have the son, the priesthood is transferred from one generation to the next generation. Such as when Aaron was alive, he had four sons ministering, and they were ministering because they were contemporaries and they were also going to succeed him when Aaron died, which his four sons did. Two of them did. They died actually before Aaron died because of their sin. And then the other two sons took up the leadership of the priesthood. Why is there this system? Because men die. Because men die, you need somebody to be the mediator of the next generation, the mediator for the people, between the people and God. Because men die, it's necessary to transfer that priesthood, to install an, uh, the son in the lifetime of the father, to anoint the son in the role of priest while the father is alive, so when the father dies, the son can carry it on. He carries it on to help the rest of the people approach God in the right way. But in this case, he abides a priest perpetually. There is no transference of the priesthood of Melchizedek. When we read of Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he has the priesthood and he doesn't give it to anyone else. No one else possesses it. No one else has it except Psalm 110, verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Father, God the Father, says to the Son in Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You, Christ, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What Melchizedek had, what Melchizedek possessed, you possess, and you possess it forever. Because Melchizedek actually it has a resemblance to what your priesthood is and yours is forever. Jesus, he died, but he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, there is no need for Jesus to hand his priesthood over to anyone else. That's why it says in Hebrews 7, verse 23, 
And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater number because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Permanently. So, the symbol of Melchizedek holding it perpetually was meant to be fulfilled in Christ who holds the priesthood permanently. So, the implication. If Christ holds it permanently, we don't have to go to anybody else for our mediation between us and God. Only Christ, because he has that priesthood. Don't go to anyone else. No other religious leader, no other religious authority, no other religion, no other philosophy, no other way to secure your eternal life. It's only in Christ. It also shows that anything that might seek to subvert that or undermine that is unnecessary and actually dangerous. Because there are cults in Christianity that say that they possess the priesthood of Melchizedek. That they possess that priesthood. But that's impossible. Hebrews 7.3 and 7.24 say that Christ holds this perpetually, forever. He holds it. And if he holds it, there's no need for anybody else to have it. And if somebody else does have it, it would be slanderous. It would be blasphemy to mitigate and minimize the importance of what Christ holds. So no one else can. It would be perilous to presume otherwise. Furthermore, its relationship to the law of Moses. If Melchizedek had this priesthood that was superior in identity, he had an identity and a ministry superior to Abraham, what makes anyone think that the priesthood of Aaron or the Levitical priesthood or the ministries that Moses instituted would be better than Melchizedek? No, they cannot. Whatever Moses instituted hundreds of years later than Melchizedek and Abraham, it could not be superior, but it would only be for the purpose of supporting or illustrating or verifying and vindicating the fact that Melchizedek's priesthood was better than the Levitical priesthood. And it is that point that our apostle will undertake to prove in the remainder of chapter 7. That point is that we should not imagine, no one should imagine, whether in the time of Moses or any of the descendants after Moses, should imagine, even till today, imagine that the Mosaic covenant is the means of salvation, that works of the law are the means of salvation. No one should even fathom that thought. There is no work, even a good work, a work in the law of Moses that can save us from sins. Because Moses, just like Abraham, and just like others, they all understood that the priesthood that Melchizedek represented would be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and only him. That is the only way of salvation. This is why it says in Hebrews 11.26 that Moses regarded the reproach of Christ greater riches, for he was looking to the reward. Moses even was looking to the death of Christ. The reproach of Christ is his death. 
He was looking to that for the reward and he was not living for this world. So, let's believe in one God. Let's believe in one Christ, one mediator, one savior, one gospel, one way of salvation, one truth from the beginning of time till the end of time. Let's glory in that. Let's boast in that and not entertain any other thought. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.